So Jay, what are the limits of Mystique's shape-shifting powers anyway? I know she could take humanoid forms, and that of most animals, but I also know that she's not supposed to be able to change her overall body mass. So what's up? Well, that was initially the case, but like most mutant powers, it varies from writer to writer. She still has organs and stuff, though, right? Well, she has them, sure, but she can shift them around and presumably significantly reshape them without suffering major damage. How significantly are we talking? Uh, you know, roughly two-dimensional. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 305 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And a continued welcome back to the main Marvel Universe. We are going through our grand tour of the X-Team books, now that we're back from AOA, and we have stumbled upon X-Factor. So, I want to express an extremely, extremely petty peeve about this era of X-Men. I love petty peeves. What's this one? When I'm writing about these, when I'm writing about them for my notes, or when I'm, I'm writing about them or naming files for our visual companions, I use title um, acronyms, title initials. And it seems really unfair to me that two of the teams that are not X-Men have the initials XF. Oh, I totally know what you mean. Uh, in all my notes, they've become X-Fa and X-Fo, which is a little silly every time I read them in my head, and it makes me distracted and giggle. So this week we are on X-Fa, X-Factor, and we talked last week when we talked about X-Force about the, the two-week post-Age of Apocalypse gap, that there's been a small but significant time jump since the main continuity restarted in the aftermath of the Age of Apocalypse. And this is one of the books that I feel like is kind of hit hardest by it. I agree, yeah. I'm, I'm not against having time jumps, you know, just jumping in and medias rest and having to sort of scramble to figure out what's going on. That's fun. I mean, shit, The Empire Strikes Back does that when it starts. Well, aside from the opening text crawl. But, you know, the rest of it. But this isn't that. This isn't jumping in in the middle of an adventure. It's just jumping into things being different. This is true. This is true, and I suspect that's something that's going to come up a fair bit in this episode as we talk about these issues. But I feel like since, just like last episode was a lot of people's first X-Force episode in a while, uh, this is going to be a lot of people's first X-Factor episode in a while. Or possibly their first one ever if they're jumping in uh, with our Age of Apocalypse coverage. So let's talk about what happened before. This is the second X-Factor team that we've covered on this show. The first is irrelevant, so we're not going to go into it here. Now, this team, this X-Factor, is the U.S. government's very own team of mutant heroes. X-Factor's previous government liaison was the human Dr. Valerie Cooper, but due to some trust issues involving her not telling X-Factor about her bosses restarting the anti-mutant Sentinel program, she was ousted. Val's replacement was the mutant Forge. He's got a mustache, he's got a ponytail, he's a technopath, and he and Storm are on and off again, involved. X-Factor's roster, aside from their liaisons, has had a pretty rough time of it lately, though. Multiple men died of the mostly mutant-targeting legacy virus, Strong Guy had a heart attack while fighting aliens, Team Leader Havoc lost control of his plasma blast powers and blew up a dam, and Wolfsbane left to join Excalibur. So, who's left? 
Okay, so we have Polaris, the magnetism-controlling, on-again, off-again daughter of Magneto. And Forge, whom we mentioned earlier. And that's it, but, but, but wait a minute, what the hell is Mystique doing here? She's a shape-shifting supervillain. We've also got Wildchild on the team. He's Canadian, he wears a trench coat, and... We're mostly familiar with him through Age of Apocalypse. He's actually here courtesy of Alpha Flight, but we'll get to that later in this episode. As we launch into X-Factor number 112, Unnecessary Evils. This issue is written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Jeff Matsuda, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And John Francis Moore is actually only going to write the issues that we're covering in this arc. He, of course, wrote Factor X, the Age of Apocalypse equivalent of X-Factor, which we quite liked. And it seems kind of weird. Like, if you're going to go back to the 616, it's weird to have this bold new direction with somebody who's only going to be around for a few issues. I feel like you can't talk about more without mentioning that he also wrote Wolverine Killing, one of the weird best forgotten one-shots that we've found so far. And I think he wrote X-Men Phoenix, uh, the miniseries that was about Rachel Summers in the future founding the Order of the Ascani. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Matsuda, we've seen before, he actually did the X-Factor segment in X-Men Prime, the Welcome Back to the 616 anthology issue. He's just here for this issue. He'll be back for a run a little bit later. And along with the new penciler, it's got a new logo. It's very reminiscent of the logo for Factor X from Age of Apocalypse. In fact, it's basically the same logo, just with the X at the beginning instead of the end. It looks pretty cool. It's mildly unsettling in context. Eh, yeah, there is that. Al Milgram is inking through this this issue and the next, and I think actually this entire arc, and I gotta say, I am having such a hard time with him on these. You know, I've heard other people say they don't like Milgram's inks either. I... I guess I'm just not enough of a connoisseur to really distinguish distinguish between uh, how much the pencils contribute to a given page versus how much the inks do. Because to me, his inks seem a little bit chameleonic. Like, whatever penciler he's with, his inks seem to cater at least decently to their, their style. But that could be totally—I mean, it is, it is totally subjective. Something else I want to mention about this issue, or rather this arc, um, is that the title of the whole story, story arc it's part of is Wreaking Havoc. And while I didn't look it up, because I am derelict in my expert responsibilities, I'm like 90% sure that they've used that before. Do you remember back in the day when pretty much every other X-Men story was called Ghosts? <laughs> I do, I do. But okay, let's think about this. So, wreaking havoc. I've heard the phrase before, it's when you, like, fuck shit up real good. What does the word reek actually mean? I mean, W-R-E-A-K. I know, like, R-E-E-K means you smell bad. So... According to Dr. Internet, my expert source, it means to cause, but specifically in context of a large amount of damage or harm, as in the phrase wreak havoc, or inflict, as in vengeance, um, archaically uh, was used to, to mean avenge. But it's pretty much always tied to one of those two, fra two phrases, um, wreaking havoc or uh, wreaking revenge. Okay, so you're basically inflicting Alex Summers in this story. Eh, I guess that sounds about right. Yeah, I think that's an entirely reasonable phrase. I, I'm sorry, God, I'm so mean to Havoc, and I feel so bad. He's one of my favorite characters. Alex Summers, comma, inflicted. If you're wondering if he finishes his dissertation in this three-issue arc, uh, the answer is no. <laughs> no, no. So, 
X-Factor number 112 occupies a special place in my personal X-History. This specific issue is actually the single issue that made me stop reading X-Men in particular and comics in general for years. That is a damn shame. You want to know why? Why is that? Because if you'd lasted just three more issues, you would have gotten to one of my favorite issues of this run, which is X-Factor 115. I, I never got to it. Yeah, my first time reading it was actually pretty recently as I was reading ahead for the podcast. But it's weird because honestly, this isn't a bad issue. It's totally mm. fine. I think for me, though, and I've mentioned this before when we've talked about this on the podcast, but I think for me, there was too much of a been there, done that feel. It's like, oh, Havoc's losing control of his powers and everybody's hunting him and the team got new members and we don't know why. And after the breath of fresh apocalyptic air that was Age of Apocalypse, it just felt like, ah, uh, this stuff again? Havoc hasn't lost control of his powers this badly in a very, very long time, actually. I think it wasn't Havoc in particular, it was just that that's such a common mutant plotline, or honestly, superhero plotline. It is, but I think it's actually a more effective and more interesting plotline with Havoc than it is with most characters, and I'm going to get into that a little bit later. I wish you'd been there to convince early teenage Miles to keep reading. Although, come to think of it, we already knew each other then. You just weren't reading X-Men yet. Well, and I wasn't deeply invested in your, you know, monthly comics habit. <laughs> That's true. I suppose I can forgive you. We were just getting to know each other. Anyway, we open in Tokyo, where the X-Men so often hang out. I was seriously thinking about coming up with a stereotypical and somewhat racist cliched, cliches in um, portrayals of Japan in Marvel Comics drinking game for this episode, by the way, or for this issue specifically, and about three pages in, I determined that we would die. Oh, well, uh, I don't really want to die for this issue, so let's not do that. But X-Factor is in Tokyo looking for Havoc. He disappeared since we saw him in X-Men Prime, where he lost control of his powers and blew up a dam, and X-Factor has tracked him here. So, like we mentioned in the previously on section, we have Polaris and Forge from the previous incarnation of the team. They're the only members that we're used to that are here, and with them are Mystique and Wildchild. So, we know what Mystique's deal is. She's been all over the X-Line since forever. Who's Wildchild? Okay, so Wildchild, like you mentioned before, Jay, is an Alpha Flight character. He's been around in Alpha Flight for a number of years. All that really tells me is that he's Canadian. Uh, yes, he is Canadian, and um, he worked for the government. Also, he worked against the government. Uh, so he was abandoned by his parents due to his appearance. He's got this sort of vaguely bestial appearance. Like, he talks about how ugly he is, but honestly, he just looks like a guy who's got a slight underbite and pointy teeth. He looks like a smaller, more anime Sabretooth. He does! I was thinking, like, if Sabretooth was a bear, then Wildchild would be the otter equivalent of that bear. The rest of you can Google those in, in mutual context later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was on a river float once, and um, someone kept referring to me as a spring bear based on my body type, but I'd never heard that phrase before, but I think I was flattered. That's that's getting in... I, I, I am not wildly familiar with bear gradations. I my, my main investment in bear culture is feeling strongly that hanky code is sufficiently specific and granular that there should be one that means is an actual bear. Ah, hanky code. Semaphore, but bonin. Anyway, point being, Wildchild, like I said, was abandoned by his parents, and he was then taken in by the Secret Empire. You may recall them as the Captain America villains that were kind of led by Nixon, who killed himself when Captain America found out that he was uh, doing jerky things. God, comics are weird. Comics have never been political. 
Uh, Wild Child then joined Gamma Flight, which was sort of the farm team for Alpha Flight, and then Omega Flight, who were like the evil antagonists who fought Alpha Flight. Are there any Canadian superhero teams that don't have flight in their names? Uh, I'm going to say no. Weapon X Flight. Um, yeah, yeah, they're all flights. Wait, is this based on the idea that each one is a sampler set? Like you order a flight of superheroes? Oh, man. So you just have like a couple sips each of Garrison Kane, Vindicator, and Wendigo or something? I feel like you'd end up with hairballs after the third one. Eh, yeah, true. Anyway, Wild Child at one point got mysteriously handsome. I actually could not find out why or how this happened, and rejoined Alpha Flight as Wild Heart, at which point he dated Aurora, Northstar's sister. But then he started getting ugly again and left the team, which is where we find him now. As for what he does, he's got sort of those generic animalistic powers, like he's fast, he's strong, he's durable, he's got claws, he's got enhanced senses. Um... And in terms of his role on the team, well, he's Jimmy Carl Black, the Wolverine of the group. Now, X-Factor, this, this lineup, is, is in Japan to find Havoc, the proper noun, Havoc the person, not just you know, Havoc. They are thwarted almost immediately by a bunch of cyborg samurai. These are the cyborg whom we last saw in um, Louis Simonson's final, final X-Factor arc. So this was with the original X-Factor team which we covered in episode 160, Hank McCoy and the Hickey of Destiny. And man, they really don't fare much better this time. I think, honestly, the main thing they have going for them is that they're called Cyber Eye, and I do enjoy me a good or even bad portmanteau. I don't think that I would consider that an asset, but I will absolutely, you know, they, they, they got to take what they can get here. X-Factor totally kicks their asses because, of course, turns out the Cyber Eye were just there to slow the team down for their boss Tatsuo anyway. Tatsuo is the grandfather of Iceman's ex-Opal. He's a Yakuza shithead. We don't like him. So one of the things that I really love about John Francis Moore on X-Factor, and I'll, I'll admit that, that his writing here is uneven, but his mystique is spot on. And especially the extent to which, like, the things that delight her are things like Polaris accidentally injuring a bunch of people with her powers. I think at one point she actually suggests that they just rampage through a crowd. I didn't think you had it in you, girl. Most of Xavier's extended family are too angst-ridden to use their powers so decisively. That said, Mystique really doesn't want to be here. She is not on this team voluntarily. Yeah, I mean, she's usually a supervillain, and when she has been on the side of the angels, like when she was staying with Forge and he was helping her with her psychological issues, or when she was running Freedom Force for Val Cooper, uh, it turns out she was just playing everybody, like, all of those times. Yeah, this is closest to her Freedom Force arrangement, where, basically, she chose X-Factor over prison. And I really enjoy how she just keeps trying to get away and it keeps failing. Like, at one point she tries to escape by morphing into one of this crowd of, like, giggling schoolgirls that gets out of a concert nearby and almost knocks Forge over. But it doesn't work because Forge, of course, implanted a shape-shifting detector in her when the government captured her, which seems kind of, like, unethical and it should probably be illegal, but... Uh... See, the fact that he did this means that I have less than no sympathy for him when Mystique proceeds to nonstop mess with him by transforming into Storm and just, like, giving him shit. Yeah, she flirts with him super, super wickedly. And she, she in fact, 
as she does so, even mocks Forge for ever trusting her. I enjoy that Mystique, when she's in a helpless position, basically takes out her anger by just being petty and mean, essentially. She's so good at it, though. I can understand why she's mad at Forge, though. I mean, it's been years at this point. Well, in the comic universe, I don't know how long it's been, but a while at least. But she still blames Forge for the death of her lifetime romantic partner, Destiny. He was supposed to protect her, and she ended up getting killed anyway, way back in Muir Isle. Uh, she was killed by Legion. And, But yeah, this this is Mystique at her smirking, petty best. Um, I, I don't know about best, but definitely her smirkiest and pettiest, and Moore really has a lot of fun with this, and it's pretty obvious, and it's it's a lot of fun to read as well. So as for Havoc, he is indeed in Japan. He has barely survived a plane crash and doesn't know what the hell's going on. He's basically drunk on injury. Well, he's he's drunk on his powers. When his powers are sufficiently out of control and charged up, they mess with his cognition. That's that's part of how they work, and that's that's one of their side effects. In this case, they've also cost him most of his clothing. He not only crashed the plane, but he blew apart most of what he was wearing, so I guess take a drink. I really appreciate how the usual impaired colorful dots around his head that you often see in comic books when characters are out of it or drunk or dazed or whatever are just little colorful versions of his power manifestation. That's kind of a cool touch. And I appreciate that in this arc, whichever artist is drawing him kind of draws it the same way. Yeah, agreed. I think that's a really nice touch and it's really it's a really good subtle visual indicator of what's actually up. Suddenly, out of nowhere, it's Holy shit, it's Scarlett McKenzie. Jay, who is Scarlett McKenzie, for those who might not remember her? Well, first of all, I feel like we need to establish that she is, as far as we know, not related to Namor McK McKenzie. Uh, yes, yes, as far as we know, uh, no relation. So, Scarlett is a character who made her first, and until this point only, 616 appearance in the miniseries Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. This is, we're, we're going to all of our, like, favorite forgotten classics um, this episode, because that that is... Probably, honestly, maybe my favorite X-Men miniseries ever. It's definitely got some of the best art that's ever shown up in an X-Men comic. We cover it at exhaustive length in episode 114, which stands alone pretty well if you want to go back and catch up. But Scarlet was, at that point, working for a Soviet scientist who was trying to start, use Havoc to start a nuclear war. She was sort of a femme fatale, she was, as many femme fatales are, a spy, and she seduced Havoc for the ends of her employer, thus adding herself to the surprisingly long list of redheads who have manipulated Havoc. I think he might actually be at a higher count than Scott at this point, which is ridiculous. I mean, I don't even think it's that Havoc is dumber or has poorer judgment. I think he's just got that old Alex Summers luck. I mean, he also has really poor judgment. But one of the things that's good to know about, about Havoc going into this story and looking at him in general is that he's a character who's consistently really struggled with identity and with the idea of, of defining himself. He tends to be kind of a chameleon. He sort of shapes whatever... He shapes himself into whatever role or circumstances the story or his life kind of thrust him into. So, in and in Meltdown, that was that was very much sort of a noir story and protagonist. Now, Scarlet apparently died at the end of Meltdown, and she next popped up in Age of Apocalypse as a torch singer and a human spy in a nightclub with whom 
Havoc, who was a villain in that universe, was romantically involved. And I believe she also died in that timeline. She did, yeah. So she's uh, she's she's two for three as far as death here. This Scarlet, who is somehow mysteriously alive, was apparently trying to take Havoc to the nation of Genosha on the plane that he inadvertently crashed by having his powers explode outward. Genosha is the mutant metaphor apartheid state that we've seen in a number of stories in the past, most notably the Extinction Agenda. We don't find why she's trying to take him to Genosha, but I will say he certainly has some history with Genosha. After he went through a magic portal that erased all of his memories and reset his life, he was actually working for the anti-mutant Genosian government there for a while. Yeah, he was he was a prelate in the Genosian government, I think, um, until the end of Extinction Agenda. Yep, yep. Well, we don't have too much time to process what the hell is going on and why Scarlet's alive, because Havoc quickly gets hit by a car and knocked through the plate glass window of the nearby Club Kaboom, which really should rename itself to Club Sound of Shattering Glass, am I right? No, because Club Kaboom is a fantastic name for a nightclub. I guess it does roll off the tongue a little better, yeah. I love it. No, I think I, I think it's just a really, really good name for a club. Well, so does Yukio, a character we've seen before who watches with amusement this whole set of events. Yukio is a ronin. She's a masterless ninja who tends to intersect with whatever X-Men happen to be in Japan. She's been a partner, romantic, and logistical of Wolverines. The same with Storm. She was the one who inspired Storm to go punk, in fact. Uh, a ronin is actually a masterless samurai, but that is consistent with X-Men's regular mixing up of samurai and ninja. Oh man, one of my favorite terrible kung fu movies I've ever watched, which wasn't really kung fu, it was different martial arts, was The Legend of the Nine Samurai, and there were zero samurai. There were just ninjas, and uh, some of them wore a great deal of fishnet, and it was great. I remember watching that movie with you in college. Oh yeah, a total classic. Um, in that one no. specific way. Not really. Anyway... Anyway, Yukio is fantastic. She first showed up in the, the Chris Claremont Frank Miller Wolverine miniseries... She is definitely Storm's ex-girlfriend, and I will fight anyone who claims otherwise. Mm-hmm. I do enjoy the way the random club-goers react to this dude getting knocked through a window and suddenly starting to shoot plasma everywhere. Run, Yoshio, before the American supervillain brings the entire building down upon our heads. If only Robot Master or Lita Gemstone were here to save us! Okay, I would totally read a comic about Robot Master or Lita Gemstone. There actually was a villain called Robot Master, but I think that's a different guy. Well, I feel like there's a lot that's just massively, massively problematic about, well, in general, representation of non-American countries in, in Marvel comics. Um, I do love the idea that superhero culture, and in, in general, the cultural role of superheroes, is has has distinct links to... to or distinct regional or national links and identities and structures. See, I just keep thinking of Lita Gemstone as the musician Lita Ford, but like a magical girl, which would be awesome. Yeah, okay. X-Factor does manage to find Havoc, because apparently their Explodo detectors uh, have detected a lot of great big Explodos, and they burst in. The reason they're chasing him, in addition to rescuing him in general, is to try to get him into a containment suit as quickly as possible so his powers stop flaring everywhere. This is specifically, and again, I'm going to come back to this in context of Havoc's powers going out of control, this is the containment suit that Larry Trask designed for him back in the Silver Age. 
Yeah, it's that one that you probably think of when you think of Havoc's appearance. It's just a pure black bodysuit with no defining features except the weird hat and the fact that he has these white concentric circles constantly radiating out from his chest on top of it. Something I really appreciate about every artist in this arc is that they all draw Havoc's powers right, which is to say in the plane of the page rather than the plane of his body. Yeah, so it's like a set of 2D circles over his 3D form. It's really rad. It's important, and I it bothers me when people don't do it, and I love it when they do because it's one of those weird, incredibly comic-specific visual conceits that looks really cool and also makes his powers always look slightly uncanny and off. Right. Well, another person who likes that is a second sexy lady looking for Havoc. This is like a romantic comedy, but with more explosions. This is Fatale. She's a gray-skinned woman with blue hair, green lipstick, and an Age of Apocalypse-style face tattoo, and goddamn, she looks 90s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's also a teleporter, uh, like pretty much every other character introduced in 1995. Yeah. We'll find out later that she's working for Dark Beast, one of the SKPs of the Age of Apocalypse universe. For now, all we know is that she wants to intercept Havoc before Scarlet does. And we also learn very quickly from Yukio that um, she, she uses a ghost tiger style for fighting, and we learn quickly from the progress of the fight that she also carries poisoned knives in her sleeves. Which, as she stabs Havoc real hardcore from behind, leads us into X-Factor number 113, Impulsive Behavior, or Inflicting Alex Summers, Part 2. This is written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Jerry Bingham, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glynis Oliver, lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. So we'll have Steve Epting, one of our favorite artists of this era, coming on with the next issue. And I gotta say, Jerry Bingham really seems to be trying to make that transition smooth. His art style looks a lot like Steve Epting's. There's still a really distinct shift when Epting takes over, partly because Epting is just a way better artist than either of the preceding two. They're not bad. They're, they're, you know, there's nothing wrong with their art. But Epting is, is definitely a cut above. Yeah. So this this issue picks up with the club fight, and I'm just, I, I realize that whenever Yukio shows up, I spend half the episode talking about how awesome she is, but I'm gonna do that anyway, because I have certain beliefs that are very close to my heart, and one of them is that Yukio's awesome. And here, she spends most of the fight just sitting on the bar and watching and commenting, and I really like it, and it works very, very well. If I had to pick a defining trait for Yukio, it would be that she basically doesn't give a shit and is amused by everything until eventually she shrugs and helps the good guys. Yeah, I think casual would be a good descriptor, at least of the way she tries to present herself. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I love the way this fight works. Um, one of the cool little touches uh, that I appreciate is that Polaris, she's furious, of course, because, you know, her man been done wrong, and he's also in danger. She's concerned about him. So... As her emotions rise, so does, like, every single metal item in the entire bar. There's just this big wave of, like, teapots and forks and napkin holders and stuff rising up behind her, which is, it's a really cool visual. I like that Club Kaboom also apparently has, you know, metal teapots. I mean, it's in Japan, and we have established this arc is all about caricatures of Japan, and they like tea. So, therefore, they like teapots, I assume. Anyway, as it turns out, Fatal isn't actually here to take Alex to anywhere. Her entire job is to keep him from ending up in Genosha, which is where Scarlet's trying to get him. To that end, she picks him up and teleports off, leaving the bar in flames. 
So this leaves X-Factor with a set of interconnected problems. First, Alex is currently prone to spontaneously exploding. Second, he might also be dead. Third, there are two confusing ladies kidnapping him back and forth. Summer's problems, womp womp. It's true. Very, very summer's problems. I, I would like to digress for a moment from the actual content of this issue to talk about actually the actual content of this issue still, but the non-comics content, because this issue shipped and contained the 1995 Marvel Reader Survey, and it's pretty fascinating. I think I'm oh, going to stick it up in the Visual Companion just because it's a lot of fun, and it's also a really good snapshot of what Marvel was curious about in 1995. See, I should have given this issue more credit, because then I might have answered the Marvel Reader Survey, and I could have helped shift Marvel to a direction I was more excited about. One of the questions is how you feel about the Clone Saga. I didn't have any feelings about the Clone Saga. I only read books that had X's in their titles, or that should have. Well, that survey's not for you, then. Alas, alack. Maybe that's why you stopped. It was the Clone Saga, I just didn't realize it? No, it was just the survey. You read it and you were like, my priorities are not in line with these. <laughs> that's probably it. Anyway, Alex wakes up from his most recent kidnapping on a freighter. He's hanging in this sort of techno bondage harness that's supposed to prevent his powers from going explodo? It is very definitely made out of dryer tubing, and I am incapable of taking it seriously. Do you think it actually does anything, or do you think at this point Fatal has realized that Alex is so depressed that she could just, like, tie a twist tie around his little finger and tell him he was helpless and he would just say, okay. And he does explode through this thing at one point, too, so it's not gonna be- it, it doesn't even work. It might as well be dryer tubing. Hmm. Well, he doesn't just get himself out of the situation, though, because Yukio has decided to start kind of giving a shit and has showed up to rescue him. And luckily for Alex, Yukio has a canonically casual attitude toward pot getting potentially electrocuted. So she's able to figure out a way to get him out of the harness and, and deal with all of that. She's interrupted by Fatal in the process of this, but then the newly sort of kind of freed Alex explodes apparently, but not actually killing both of them. X-Factor is still vaguely hot, well, lukewarm, well, not absolute zero, on Alex's trail. They end up tracking down the aforementioned Tatsuo, that shitty old Yakuza guy who we don't like at all. And while Tatsuo himself is not very interesting, the narration about what he's doing when they find him is great. It describes him as sleeping, and I quote, the sleep of the wicked, which is apparently kind of sprawled. Yeah, okay, okay. I feel like um, if you're going on the wicked's noble uh, scale, it's sort of a, a sprawled versus orderly. It's like order Muppets and chaos Muppets. While the sleep of the wicked seems pretty comfortable, the wake-up call of the wicked is much less so, because apparently that's getting yelled at by Mystique. Oh man, and as she's yelling at him to help make her point that this guy should probably just talk to X-Factor, Polaris lifts Tatsuo up by the handcuffs that uh, Mystique has slipped onto Tatsuo, which, okay, it's not as cool or impressive as, as Magneto just lifting people up by the iron in their blood, but it's way more fun and interesting. No, it's great, because Mystique doesn't mention that that's going to be what happens when she slaps the handcuffs on him. She's just like, we need, you know, she just slaps handcuffs on him, and he's like, what the hell, I can get out of these. And she's like, yeah, wait for it. The hell you say. And then Lorna just, you know, drags him through the ceiling. 
Well, it works. They get the information they need, and they do manage to find Alex in the wreckage of the freighter that he was in. They also find Yukio, who has not only survived, but gives Forge a very pointed, give Aurora my love. I love it, because Forge is like, you know Aurora? Dude, if you only knew, then you would know why Yukio doesn't really mind a little electricity. Oh my. So, this is really where we see Alex reacting hard to the loss of his powers. And Moore does a really solid job of selling just how devastating this is for him. The thing to remember about Alex, because he's had control over his powers for a very long time, he's been using them pretty casually, he's not always great at controlling their intensity, but he's pretty much got them under control, is that that was not always the case. Alex's mutation manifested comparatively really late. Um, it was when he was graduating from college, so he did not have the adjustment period that a lot of his peers had as mutants. And he was so freaked out by his powers initially that he voluntarily worked for Larry Trask. This is, this is an anti-mutant scientist who, who was running a Sentinel program at that point because Trask seemed like the only person who could actually control them or actually give him the means to control them. Like, Havoc does not have a good relationship with his powers, and he's really scared of them. When they're under control, that's fine, but this is really the first time they've spiraled this far out in, really, in his entire mutant life since the very beginning, not counting times when he's been possessed. And it really, really breaks him down. Yeah, it's like he's been plasma house trained for so long, and now Polaris shows up with a plasma puppy pad for him again. Well, it's like he's had a disability or chronic illness in remission that's flaring back up and requires cumbersome adaptive technology again. And again, you know, this isn't this isn't Cyclops's my powers are terrible, they're so destructive. This is Havoc who had learned to pretty effectively control his powers, who was used to the default being that he could control them, abruptly losing that. Yeah, no, it's it's genuinely sad, and I feel for the dude, even if he is wearing a pretty cool-looking costume now. Well, his his costume is literally just a black bodysuit with full full gloves and full socks that, that basically covers his entire body from the neck down. And depending on how it's drawn, it either has concentric rings on it, or it just perpetually gently radiates his powers from the chest. Yeah, that's the cool part. I agree. When he's being mind-controlled, it sometimes goes with a really stupid hat. Yeah, with a little ruby in the forehead, for reasons I don't recall. No, the ruby was for the mind control. Oh, okay, a mind control ruby, obviously. The hoops are just for fashion. <laughs> fashion hoops. Inflicting Alex Summers and his fashion hoops. Meanwhile, nearby, Scarlet, who has failed in her mission, is hanging out with her shadowy employer, who's a creepy-looking silhouette with pointy hands and jaggedy speech balloons. Okay, I mean, we know who this is, right? Yeah, we know this is Sugar Man, but he doesn't have Sugar Man's speech patterns, which is kind of a shame. Well, Sugar Man has been in the Marvel Universe, the main Marvel Universe, for 20 years since he escaped the Age of Apocalypse, so, I don't know, maybe he's been, like, listening to a lot of uh, Mid-Atlantic accent on the radio, and so his speech has gotten more boring. So, 
does the Sugar Man part of this plotline go anywhere, or does it just sort of fizzle after this issue? Because I don't remember it coming back up. I am somewhat pleased and somewhat sad to report that it goes absolutely nowhere. Like, we see the Sugar Man in Genosha later, which was where Scarlet was supposed to be taking Havoc, but that's not in this book, and that's got nothing to do with Havoc. And Scarlet? She just doesn't ever show up again. Like, ever, from what I understand. So, what's our conclusion about Scarlet? Do we think that this is the same Scarlet whom Havoc met in Meltdown, do we think this is a clone, a construction? What What is ha- a shapeshifter? What, what's happening here? Okay, well, if this plotline had continued and Sugar Man was indeed really interested in getting a hold of Havoc, we do know that Sugar Man has been sort of rewritten as this master geneticist uh, after he comes back from the Age of Apocalypse, even though he wasn't particularly back in AOA. So, I think it's basically a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, but genetics. Uh, yeah, yeah, we did discuss that in a previous episode, that's true. But I guess it could be conceivable that if you had a master mad scientist geneticist who really wanted to get a hold of a dude, he could, like, make a new genetic recreation of that dude's ex-girlfriend. Well, there's also another possibility. Which just occurred to me. Sugar Man landed in the Marvel Universe in Genosha about 20 years before the, the Marvel present, the present of this issue. It's possible that the first Scarlet was a construct, too. Oh, man. So, like, Sugar Man was all caught up in Perestroika and stuff? I mean, it kind of makes sense when you look at his his master plans, but, I mean, she also just could have been an experiment that got out or any of a number of things. He doesn't have to have been involved in Meltdown for, for, her, for that to actually have been her origin. I think we've now officially put more thought into Scarlet's continuity than anybody has after this particular issue. Man, see, she's a, she's a really interesting character in Meltdown, and I, I think one who, who deserves to have that thought retroactively put into her origin. Agreed. So Scarlet is gone, and so is that issue, which brings us to 114, That Certain Mystique. This issue is written once again by John Francis Moore, penciled by, yay, Steve Epting, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. I feel like this should have been the first issue after Age of Apocalypse if they really wanted to draw people in. Like, this is a quiet issue where we really focus on all the characters and what they're up to, where we learn a little bit about Wildchild. Like, he was there for the last two issues, but I realize we barely talked about him because he doesn't really do much very exciting aside from tackle people. I really like this issue. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point because the stuff in, in 112 and 113 could have pretty easily been covered in, in flashback. Yeah, yeah. But this issue opens with a nice little cold open, I guess, as X-Factor tests Mystique's implant, a different implant rather than the tracking implant, she's got multiple implants, in this big, unnecessarily complicated machine. Basically, what we find is that with this implant, Mystique is unable to turn into any X-Team member for more than 30 seconds, or else she gets a horrifying, debilitating headache. Like, it doesn't really make a ton of sense that you would have that arbitrary limit, but it is really fun for narrative tension. I assume that's also, or that, that that's how long it takes the implant to catch up with what she's doing. I don't know. I got the feeling it was more deliberate. Like, we want you to be able to imitate X-team members on missions in case that's useful, but not, you know, not too much. Not enough to fool us. Hmm. It would make more sense to have it be an ability they could turn on or off. Well, yeah, but it would be less fun for the story. 
It's based apparently on their genetic imprint, which raises some questions about Mystique's powers. That's true, yeah. I mean, her powers, I feel like they've been explained a number of times in a number of different directions. I'm sure we could find stories that directly contradict her powers working that way, but, you know, whatever. It's fine. So, she chooses to test the limit on these, by the way, by going back to being Storm just to mess with Forge. You just won't admit the idea of me playing your little Storm Queen excites you. Ah, oh, the fun we could have. And while she's on that role, she also refers to Wild Child as Farm League Wolverine, which is mean but not wrong. Mean but not wrong. The Raven Darkholm story. She's got a new costume, too, at this point. It's really rad! It's all black, it's this leotard with thigh-high boots and a leather jacket. It kind of reminds me of a toned-down version of the pirate look that she had in the Age of Apocalypse Excalibur miniseries. Her butt is really shiny, and it's weird. It's to distract her opponents. She can shapeshift. It's to distract her opponents in case the shapeshifting doesn't work. Does the shapeshifting mean that she can move, like, the shiny spot in her costume around to different parts of her anatomy, depending on her preference? God, that would be distracting. Like a laser pointer for a cat. <laughs> that's, so so that, that's, one of, that's one of my seriously Milgram seriously panels, honestly. These things happen. Because that, that is all inking. The, the other thing, speaking of Mystique and speaking of, of this issue and, and things that has, it has done to me, is that I was reading it and I, I let my guard down. And by the time I came to my senses, I had started to low-key ship Mystique and Val Cooper. Right, because Val Cooper is around. She's still affiliated with X-Factor at this point, even though she's not their official liaison. And they totally have a history. They were best buds back when Mystique was pretending to be an entirely other person who Val got close to. And so Val is bitter because of that betrayal, Forge is bitter because of Mystique's other betrayal, and Mystique is just eating it up. Well, and she's flirting with Val even more than she is with Forge. Oh, God, they're also, yeah. There are also two characters I would 100% buy having a relationship entirely based on mutual antagonism. Like a sexy relationship? Yeah, yeah, like just, just having nonstop hate sex. Yeah, that's incredibly easy to picture. Very true. Yeah, no, it's, it's just like deeply in character for both of them. Well, far away from all of this electric tension, Havoc is moping and moping back at X-Factor's old base that they're now moving out of. They're apparently relocating to Forge's complex in Virginia, thanks to anti-mutant sentiment in Washington, D.C., which, okay, I mean, that fits this era. That's fine. And Lorna, Lorna keeps trying to reassure Alex, saying, hey, the suit is temporary, you know, you're going to regain control of your powers, it's going to be fine, we're going to get you treatment. But he's so angry and so ashamed. Yeah, he sees what's going on as basically being progression, as being, you know, loss of control that for him was a pretty critical part of, of becoming a superhero and, and, again, sort of his sense of, of self-definition. And it's also, it's also just a cumbersome device like it, it covers him it, you know it covers his hands with full gloves it you know cover it covers his entire body it, it basically puts him in in rogue's position as far as fashion although presumably it's also somewhat heavier because it's got technology built in like i always my 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 entirely not particularly conscious read on it was always that it was probably vaguely like neoprene weight yeah i could totally see that although i don't know unstable molecules are probably involved somehow they're basically in everything 
Valid point. Havoc is also pissed about Forge having recruited freaking Mystique while Havoc was gone, but honestly, Havoc's not really in a good position to lead the team or really contribute much to it at all, so I guess Forge needed warm bodies. Okay, first of all, it is entirely reasonable, regardless your role in a team, to be annoyed about someone recruiting Mystique onto it. Yeah, yeah, there's that. Second, and in Forge's defense here, this is a conversation in which Forge very matter-of-factly and casually refers to Alex not being able to control his powers as a disability, and that alone is enough to completely sell me on this issue. Oh yeah, yeah, it's so rare that disability politics get brought up, like, at all in X-Men books. Well, and it's rare that something like this gets accurately identified as that. True, true. Havoc wanders off to go talk to the comatose Guido Caracella, strong guy who's been in a medically induced coma since his heart attack before Age of Apocalypse. Strong guy's in this sort of back-to-tank looking thing, but Havoc just goes through the list of everything that's gone wrong. Rain leaving, Guido's heart attack, Havoc's own powers, Mystique joining, and eventually he sums it up. Sometimes I think that the world must have been shattered into tiny little pieces. When it finally reassembled, not all the pieces fit anymore. I think I'm one of those pieces, Guido. Based on what we know about Alex, what do we think about this direction for the character, this level of just despair? I 100% buy it and dig it. This is very, very, very consistent with prior portrayals of Alex and the ways that he ends up adrift, the ways that he struggles with sense of identity and sense of place and purpose. You remember that one time that he and Polaris were going to graduate, but then a space shark fell on them and derailed their lives for, like, ever? Yeah, yeah. Alex's ABD state is, is a sometimes unfairly apt metaphor. Well, Forge is being pretty mopey as well. He's doing what Forge does, which is going through a greatest hits reel, holographically, of all the terrible experiences that he's had, or good experiences that just remind him of terrible experiences. Specifically, he's going through a recreation of a battle he was in with his platoon in Vietnam. You know, the platoon that eventually all got killed, and that to avenge he summons demons which did more bad things. Yeah, didn't he actually technically sacrifice all of their souls to summon the demons? I want to say he did, yeah. Not, not the best decision. Mystique, being Mystique, is obviously spying on Forge as he does this, because I feel like anytime anyone does anything, Mystique is obviously spying on them, and she calls him on it. What a clever way to see the world without leaving the comfort and safety of home. It's as if you're going everywhere and nowhere at the same time. So typical of you. And again, you know, it's Mystique. She is here to push buttons, and... Boy, is she good at it. She points out that one of the reasons she's so good at imitating people using her powers is that she's observant. She notices people, and she knows when people are hiding something. She knows Forge is, and she's legitimately concerned. Or at least that's what she tells him. And I enjoy this. I enjoy the fact that we know Mystique well enough to know that she's not an entirely heartless person. She does really care about people sometimes. It's just hard to tell when that's legit and when she's playing them, and that's the line that she's walking right now. Well, and also, unless those people specifically are destiny, those aren't mutually exclusive. That's a very good point. So that's X-Factor. Save for a random tangent. 
which is to say a tangent about random. Random, of course, being the shape-shifting, gray, grizzled, lobo-looking mercenary that worked with X-Factor a fair bit over the last few years. Um, can we do a brief recap on Random Steel for the folks just coming in now? Well, I think we can sum him up pretty quickly. He is, like we mentioned, a mercenary. He's got a grizzled, I don't give a shit about nobody exterior. He essentially looks like a great big biker with a gun for an arm. So Random also has some history with X-Factor. He's been an on and off antagonist to them, usually as a mercenary, and also worked briefly for the team during one of Alex's best managerial moments in which he, his response to Random saying, well, I got paid to come hunt you was like, how much? Because we have a budget. Yeah. What we also know about Random is that he lives at home with a large collection of kitschy stuff and a really sweet lady named Vera. Who is maybe his girlfriend and maybe his sort of caretaker housekeeper and maybe an actual relative of his. It's really unclear. But things aren't going to go well in this scene, and the narration leads up to that pretty well. Sometimes you construct a life for yourself, collect a paycheck, come home, order pizza, watch cable, fall asleep. And maybe the routine drowns out the little voice that says, you're kidding yourself, none of this is real. And sure enough, Random answers the phone when it rings, his face goes blank, and he kills Vera. So... I wasn't sure about that, because it looks like he's starting to kill her, but it looks like when he dissolved into goo, she does as well. Like she was somehow just a construct. The art's kind of unclear, and yeah, that is what happens. Random dissolves, because as we've seen before, he has to consciously hold himself together. By default, he's just sort of putty. We'll see more of this later, specifically because... Random is apparently working for the same guy that Fatale is, as Fatale talks to her shadowy boss about this whole series of events. The boss, by the way, is Dark Beast. We don't know that yet, but that'll become a big deal very soon. Dark Beast is going to become a major player in this book. But not until the next writer comes on, because this is the end of John Francis Moore's very brief X-Factor run. Um... Howard Mackey is going to take over, he's going to write the rest of the series, and he's also going to write the, um, the somewhat lesser-known spinoff, but one of my weird favorite series, Mutant X. Interestingly, John Francis Moore did have a fair number of plans for X-Factor had his run continued. I don't know why it didn't continue, but it didn't. So, for instance, he was going to bring the Bedlam Brothers that he created in Factor X into X-Factor. Instead, he's going to write X-Force later, and they'll show up there. Ah, oh, man, they would have been really great additions to this team. Agreed. In the meantime, you've got questions. Aaron Coggins emailed us to ask, When Kamala Khan teamed up with Wolverine for the first time, it was mentioned that she wrote a Wolverine X Storm fic that was very popular, though less popular than a Scott X Emma fic on the same site. That raises the question, what X ships do you think are the most popular ones in-universe? So, assuming that... The RPF community in 616 roughly echoes the comics fandom in our universe. It's hands down going to be Xavier slash Magneto. We also know for sure that in the Marvel Universe, in the 616, Wolverine is a really popular Halloween costume. So it presumably, again, is, is really popular as, as a character or as a fandom personality. However, I feel like a question we need to consider in this context is whether the compulsory heterosexuality of the Marvel of Marvel's portrayal of Earth-616 
should be seen as accurately reflective of Earth 616, which, you know, throws a whole other wrench into the gears. I'm going to go with no because it's more fun. Um, I bet there is a lot of star-crossed one of the X-Men slash one of the Avengers stuff. Um, I, I, and now I'm sort of obsessively imagining what different, different superhero fandoms look like in the Marvel universe. And I bet there's a lot of intersection with other, other parts of like real people fandom, especially with regards to the superheroes who have secret identities. Um, Daredevil fandom is probably small, but like really, really intense and someone definitely, like, there's probably one person who obsessively ships one of the X-Men and Neil Conan, and everyone's a little weirded out by it. Oh, right, because they hung out very briefly during Fall of the Mutants, canonically. Yeah, and and I, I don't know if this is a widespread phenomenon, but I did once um, stumble across a pundit-slash community. What? Yeah, yeah, so that's the whole thing. Ooh, I bet there's a lot of Kelly-slash-Xavier. Senator Kelly? yeah. Oh, that's messed up, but you're probably right. Yeah. I feel like you have a lot of mystique slash everybody fix out there. I mean, I've seen the internet, some of that gets dark, but I feel like about a quarter of those fix are just written by mystique herself under various pen names. Which of the X-Men do you think are, like, aware of this stuff? Emma, obviously. I think Ilyana reads a lot of it and viciously mocks most of it. I think Ilyana writes a lot of it. Those could both be true. Beast and Nightcrawler probably have a very dedicated following on certain corners of the internet, but I feel like when one of them inevitably found out about this and told the other, they were both pretty amused and good-natured about it and then just, like, had a beer or something. I mean, I think they definitely read some of the stories aloud. <laughs> probably. Beast did all the voices. Nightcrawler laughed a lot. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that. Uh, Jean Grey and Emma Frost, but honestly, that's a pretty great pairing in, in uh, the real-life fan community as well, so I feel like that would be just the same in the X-Universe. Yeah, I mean, my assumption would be that a lot of a lot of the, the preferred pairings and, and stuff like that, and popular pairings, would basically be the same as, as the ones here. What else do we have? An anonymous listener from Tumblr has, has a, a whole parcel of Forge questions, um... Respectively, and I think I think we're just going to cover them all in very quick succession. Let's see. Um, first, you can choose one person to invent something to save your life. Would you choose Tony Stark or Forge? Uh, I would definitely choose Forge. I feel like he would design something relatively efficient and simple with maybe a couple neat, helpful extra features, which these days I guess would be made of plants because Krakoa, and like that would be it. But if Iron Man designed something to save your life. It would be some kind of giant flashy implant or armor, and it would break down or go berserk about every month, and the next thing you know, it's flying you through the sky to one of his villain's lairs who took it over, so yeah, definitely Forge. He's also very easily distracted, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Team Forge for this one too. Um, let's see. Have they ever teamed up or been rivals? I couldn't find much interaction between the two in Earth-616, but Forge did work for Tony in the House of M universe, and I think at one point in one of the Marvel Zombies alternate universe stories, Forge ended up using Iron Man's armor. I think that was about it, but I suspect they'd be fine with each other. I mean, Forge is smart enough for Tony to respect, and Forge has dealt with enough weirdos and egos to handle Tony's bullshit. Um, I will say, though, if you want to see Forge in a great rivalry with somebody— Dennis Hopeless's Cable and X-Force series has Forge and Dr. Nemesis as rival scientists, and it is so good. Oh, damn. I feel like Tony Stark would find Forge intensely frustrating because it would be impossible to reverse-engineer his work. You know, that's a really good point, yeah. 
like there's there's nothing you can really learn from him that's practically applicable. So let's see. Next question. Uh, do you think there's a reason that Forge has never been portrayed as very wealthy, um, at least on the level with Tony, with his power, he easily could be? So I always got the impression that Forge was pretty damn rich when he was first introduced, but yeah, not nearly on Tony Stark levels. Like, we see Forge with that high-tech holographic Aerie in Dallas, where I assume the real estate's probably pretty expensive. But I feel like with Forge, once he had his handful of personal luxuries, and especially the ability to create holograms to spend all of his time in, he wouldn't really feel the need to conspicuously consume. Like, Forge doesn't seem to really give a shit what other people think about him the way that Tony does. Yeah, Forge is generally portrayed as basically having unlimited resources, or at least limits on his resources are never a significant factor. But he's he's not really into performance of wealth in the ways that Tony is. Yeah, and he also has, like an attention span that actually functions as opposed to Tony Stark, so he probably doesn't need to buy, like, a fleet of Lamborghinis every few days. Well, and they channel obsession in different directions. Yeah, yeah, very true. Like, Forge holographically relives the worst experiences of his life, and Tony buys fleets of Lamborghinis and makes them fly. You know, I won't say that there are many areas where Tony Stark has better judgment than anybody, but, uh, maybe that part's fine. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Today, we shall hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. Night has long since fallen. Outside, the dark grows darker, the cold, colder. Inside, some people sleep the sleep of the wicked, others the sleep of the just. But not you. Ray Hancock, you toss and turn, racked by the insomnia of the mediocre. And when you finally sleep, you will dream of neither paradise nor perdition, only some guy named Pete. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Onslaught continues to lurk in the shadows of Uncanny X-Men. And everyone else has a lot of feelings. But speak while we're waiting for the siren, speaking of witches, so I discovered this band a little while back called Burning Witches, mm-hmm. and it is an all-female metal band that is current, but does, like, this super, super 70s style, and all of their songs are about witchcraft. And I love them so much. Good. They're great. Yes. They have a power ballad called Black Magic, which is all about how love is like black magic. It's great. <laughs>